Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, get people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. And I'm joined this uh, month, this week, I'm joined this episode by my good friend Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, how are you? I am doing well, thanks, Stuart. Um, it's The weather's kind of wonky right now. So, like, I was doing laundry, and there are super long sleeve shirts, and then there are sweatshirts, and then there are super short t-shirts. So, yes. Um, yeah. It's summer in the Midwest, I guess. Summer <laughs> in the Midwest. Yeah, I guess is exactly right. I agree. The weather is wonky here. Last night, we had, like, this super long, it was, like, the, the longest thunder I had heard since, uh, uh, I don't know, Hurricane Harvey, essentially. She's like, and uh, I couldn't tell if it was thunder or if I was just hungry. Hey-o. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Getting punchy already. Didn't sleep well last night. Carolyn is the main thing uh, because of the aforementioned thunder and because of the uh, previously mentioned one and a half year old daughter. But uh, so this week, I'm, I'm actually really excited. Uh, I think I say that every week. I'm always excited. I'm an excitable boy. Um, we're going to be talking about modeling, right? And, and so I've been thinking about modeling a lot because it feels like modeling runs our life in some ways. And so I'm really excited to talk about modeling. But... Um can we just clarify that we're not talking about like America's, America's next top model modeling? Yeah, we're why don't you clarify about. for that? Or clarify <laughs> that for us. Well, no, that's really all I wanted to say is the modeling that we're talking about. If you're thinking that you're about to hear something about fashion shoots, you are not. That's a, such a solid point, And this shows you where I am in my life that it never even occurred to me that that type of modeling exists. Um, but yes, that is also a type of modeling. Uh, frankly, those types of models make more money than the people who make the types of models we're about to talk to. Um, if any of those models are listening and would like to sponsor the show, just reach out uh, at Teach Great Lakes on Twitter. But anyway, this week we have uh, Dr. Madeline McGee with us, and she's going to talk to us about, uh, she does some, uh, I'm going to ask her, but I think it's like water modeling of some sort. And uh, we're going to use that to engage in a conversation, hopefully, uh, about modeling in general. But first I have to decide which transitional music to do. Let's go with um, this one. <laughs> Dr. Madeline McGee is the Office of Great Waters Monitoring Coordinator with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Madeline, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. So let's start like really basic. Office of Great Waters Monitoring Coordinator. First of all, what's a great water? Um, and what does a monitoring coordinator do? I got the office part nailed. Yeah. yeah. Great questions. Um, so... Wisconsin DNR a couple of years ago went through a restructuring, and as part of that restructuring, they formed my office called the Office of Great Waters. We used to have the Office of Great Lakes, which makes sense, and then we had a team that worked on the Mississippi River. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Wisconsin geography, we share a border with Lake Michigan, Lake Superior, and with the Mississippi River. Um, the Mississippi River and the Great Lakes have many different issues, but they sort of overlap in the sense that we're working with other states and sometimes other countries. So they decided to combine both groups and 
we have the Office of Great Waters. So the Great Waters are the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River. Excellent. Well, I grew up right right on the Mississippi River in New Orleans. And so I agree. It's a very great water. Rock solid yes. water. Among among the greatest. <laughs> okay. And so what do you do as a, as a monitoring coordinator? Are you monitoring like the water levels or what's the deal there? Um, so I've been in this position about two years. And I'm going to say, I think I will give you a different answer than the person who was in my position before me. Um, but generally... I am. I help coordinate the monitoring of both the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River in terms of the the status and the health of both of them. So things like water quality monitoring. Um, our office deals with the areas of concern, which maybe you guys have talked about before on your podcast. We've not, but so, we will. Oh well. <laughs> This is like a, a nice little intro then, I guess. Yeah, I guess we're jumping <laughs> forward a few weeks. Yeah, no. Jumping the gun on what you have planned. Um, so we design, I help design studies that assess the condition of those areas of concern and determine whether we have kind of met our goals in terms of cleanups and improvement of beneficial use. On the Mississippi River side of things, we have the long-term resource monitoring program um, that's a multi-state effort um, in coordination with USGS and Army Corps of Engineers to kind of assess the condition of the Mississippi River. Um, And then one other part of my job is also beach monitoring. Um, So I am the person that leads our beach monitoring for E. coli of the Great Lakes beaches to hmm. be protective of public health. Is that mainly, that's in Wisconsin only where you do that? Yes. So how big a deal, I'm already getting this lost and I apologize for that. But but so when I lived in Texas, like the beaches were, the beaches had a lot of uh, quality issues, right? Because there's so much um, uh, petrochemical production and, and transport in the area that the beach, and, and like the beaches were really gross a lot of times. Uh, so is that like a big deal in Wisconsin too? Because there's so many wonderful beaches and at the beautiful lakes, um, I, I mean, I, I may be, I'm probably biased, <laughs> biased. I would say we have really great beaches in yeah, Wisconsin. Sure. Um, yeah, but we, so what we monitor for is E. coli as a fecal indicator bacteria. Um, I know big fancy word. It, no, I know what fecal means. Believe me, I got fecal. <laughs> yes, so, small children. Yeah. <laughs> My whole life children. is fecal. It's, yeah. I know you talk about it a lot, don't you? <laughs> Very comfortable um, fecal. So, as I'm sure you probably know, having small children, there's a lot of gross stuff in uh, fecal material, and it's really hard to monitor for all the possible gross stuff that's in the fecal material, um, and a lot of that gross stuff can end up in our waters and on the shores of our beaches. So we monitor for E. coli instead of monitoring for the plethora of all the gross stuff that can be in there um, as a way to say, you know, this beach has high E. coli. That indicates there could be other things that may make you sick. Um, So, you know, we have different levels. Yeah, as an indicator to say, maybe you should stay out of the water today. Um, but that's rare where that actually happens because the beaches are so nice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Our, our beaches are pretty nice. Most Great Lakes beaches are pretty nice. There we go. So. There we go. I'm say, I'm focused on this because I, I wanted to go to the beach up in uh, northwest Indiana with my kids tomorrow, actually. Uh, but it seems like many of them are closed currently. So I'm just dreaming of beaches. Uh, so <laughs> any beach talk is welcome, fecal or otherwise. So when you're monitoring for E. coli, do you um, – do you actually go out and sample the sand or are there other things that you guys do? Yes. Yeah, so um, mostly we sample the water 
at the beaches. Um, I do coordinate with some folks on sampling the sand, but that's more on a kind of research basis and not really to be protective of public health. Um, so you go out basically where small children are swimming. So like knee high, um, take a sample of water and depending on how big the beach is, uh, we'll monitor either one location of the beach or multiple locations across the beach as well. So I asked that question for a reason. Um, Stuart probably was like, Carolyn, you're still taking us down the world away from modeling, but actually, um, so we have uh, a couple of buoys at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. And um, when we were trying to get a new buoy, one of the things that the local um, USGS office who does some of this type of monitoring in Indiana beaches actually told us that they, they use the wind direction on the buoys to try to actually um, that they work it into a model that then can help them. Um, so do you guys do that at all? Yep, yep, we do. Um, not at all of our beaches. So we have almost 200 beaches on the Great Lakes coast in Wisconsin. And not unfortunately, not all of them are monitored. Um, we basically have to prioritize based on what we know about water quality and what we know about usage. So obviously beaches where a lot of people are going to be at, we monitor more frequently than beaches that have lower use um, or, you know, normally better water quality. And then to kind of supplement that is that monitoring is we have these now cast models. And so what they do is they predict the beach conditions, the water quality conditions at that beach for that day. So our beach managers, which are sometimes uh, the public health departments. So in Wisconsin, I'm just maybe getting into the weeds a little bit, but in Wisconsin, authority to post beaches as open or closed actually lies with the public health department, not with the DNR. I think that's different um, depending on the state that you're in. But in Wisconsin, it lies with the local public health department. So sometimes our beach managers are people at the public health department and they run the models, although part of my job is to help them get the models set up and evaluate how well they are working, if they need assistance with that. Sometimes those public health departments will contract to a consulting company or to a university. So UW Oshkosh does a lot of our beach monitoring and modeling here in Wisconsin for some of the beaches kind of like around Door County um, and Green Bay area. Anyway, so yes, we do use um, models and what we do is we use the monitoring data and then environmental variables to develop a statistical model that gives you essentially a prediction of whether E. coli is high, it would be like a closure level, whether it would be an advisory level or whether it would be in the area that we call open so that the beach manager, usually public health, can make a decision about whether the beach should stay open or closed even without specific monitoring data. And the exact environmental variables depend on the beach. So when you're setting up the model, what you'll do is you'll start by looking at things like temperature, rainfall recently. So we do know that high E. coli levels are often correlated with high rainfall levels. You'll also look at things like wind speed and wind direction or waves. If you have wave information, all those can be correlated with beaches and then um, develop your so, model from there. So you get all that information. So that's all based on measurements that are made by, you know, probably oftentimes buoys, maybe sometimes weather service uh, 
Doppler. I don't know what a Doppler is. I bet there are Dopplers <laughs> involved. Um, and and so uh, and so you take all that information and you plug it into a, a statistical model. Now I've I've had a fair amount of stats, but I'm also pretty dumb about stats. Uh, so so like a statistical model. When I hear that, I think about like a regression. Is this like a regression type thing, or or what? What are you doing exactly? Or well, not exactly. What are you doing exactly for somebody who's dumb about it, like me? Yep. Um, so. Basically, that is what you're doing, is you are making a series of regressions. And so for the beach modeling, we'll use multiple linear regressions. So when you think about a regression, like in an intro stats class, it was maybe, you know, you have something on the x-axis, like age. Here, I hurt my knee recently. So we'll say age of person. And then on the y-axis, it's like number of I don't know, lifetime number of surgeries or sure. something sure, like sure, that. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and so you'll see that there's... A correlation. I'm just assuming there's a correlation between those two variables. Um, there is for so, me. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, you'll have a bunch of data points and then you'll kind of fit a line to it. Yeah. Yep. When you use multiple linear regression, you kind of use that same idea, except instead of just having one X and one Y, you have kind of multiple of your X variables. I see. Is that? So, so, so. Help me understand this. So is that the same as when you hear about like the idea of controlling for something? Um, is that sort of the same idea or is it, you know, this is influenced. We know we, we're trying to predict an outcome we, based on these other variables that we know predicted. And, and so it's instead of just saying it'd be like the effects of age on number of surgeries, it'd also be the effects on age and I don't know, weight and activity and, and things like that, right? Yeah, so that maybe I picked a bad example because I have no idea how they control for age and sure, you know, like sure, health, sure, sure. health studies. Um, but yeah, so you. It's can more fun to assume you do know. Trust me, it's uh, fine. Yeah. It's fine. Um, so I, you know, depending on what what your study design is and how you set up your model, um, you can control by looking at the statistics or you can control by basically splitting things into groups. So um, for maybe the example that I used, instead of just looking at age to surgeries, you would have one group of males and one group of females. Um, or then also, you know, splitting by demographics. So where they live can often be an indicator of, you know, their economic affluence. Um, you know, maybe people who are more well-off can afford surgeries, so they have more surgeries. Um, and you can kind of split them into groups doing doing it like that. There are more advanced statistical techniques as well where you can kind of pull out some of those relationships mm -hmm. um, without, you know, more simply just looking at one one group oh, gotcha. at a time. But so let's pull it back to the ones you do know. Um, yep. We can we can speculate about age and surgery. Uh, <laughs> but, it was a good no, example. No, it's a very good example. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, but now I want to get, so you were saying, oh, we don't want to get two in the weeds. Well, that's where we differ. I want to get two in the weeds. <laughs> so you have this now cast, one of probably several models you use, and you, you collect all these data and it spits out like a category. This beach is good. This beach should be closed. Is that right? Yep. Pretty much. Okay, based on some range, I assume, of, of... Yeah, so in Wisconsin, we have thresholds. If you were to take a measurement of E. coli, um, based on that measurement, we have classes. So right. like 235 and below is open, 1,000 to 235 is an advisory. So it's parts then, per million? Yeah, uh, kind of. It uh, counts okay. per milliliter. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, and so those thresholds are based on risk. Um, and so what you do in when you're developing kind of the nowcast model is there's two approaches to doing it. Um, some nowcast models will try to correlate, you know, what the model predicts as the E. coli value directly. And then you're just kind of 
making decision based on what the what the model says um, that that you know modeled count is. What you can also do is you can kind of further classify it by say, well, here's our modeled count based on all of these regressions. Where does it fit within our advisory levels? And then make a decision from there. But that way also takes a little bit into account um, things like uncertainty. So there is some uncertainty in every model that you develop. And if you're kind of right in the middle of the zone, you can feel maybe more confident if you're on the edge of the zone, you know, between that open and advisory level. Maybe then you have to make a decision based on your model's uncertainty as to whether you actually leave it open or whether you would post it as an advisory. So you mentioned uncertainty. What you what exactly does that mean? Kind of um, why is there uncertainty? So why what is model uncertainty and why is there uncertainty? If you I think if you were to ask a bunch of different people what model uncertainty was, I think you would actually get different answers. Hmm. Um, they would be kind of in the same area, um, but there's not really like a, at least as far as I've seen, a clear and consistent definition of these things count as uncertainty, even though I think everyone kind of understands them similarly. Um, But the way I like to think about uncertainty is model uncertainty is basically the stuff that you're not capturing in your model. So I'm going to give an example of phosphorus and chlorophyll in a lake. So I do a lot of research on lakes. A lot of people know for, you know, inland lakes, it's different for the ocean. We're not going to talk about the ocean because I don't know much about the ocean. Um, it's got salt in it. It's about <laughs> all I know. So, and what my kids learn on wildcrats. So I know a lot about whatever ocean creatures they talk about on wildcrats. But for inland lakes, um, we had a lot of really great research, you know, uh, in the 60s, 70s that showed chlorophyll concentrations in lakes are related to phosphorus, right? I don't know if you guys have talked about this on your podcast. No, at all. I think no, no. We'll add it to the list. It's on the list. Okay. Awesome. Great, great thing to talk about. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people kind of generally know that, right? If you have more nutrients entering your lake, then you have more kind of algae production in your lake. Um, and for inland lakes, the kind of limiting nutrient is phosphorus, mostly. Phosphorus. So you can develop a model that relates the phosphorus concentration in your lakes to the chlorophyll concentration. So if you think about kind of your your regression plot graph, you would have phosphorus on the x-axis and chlorophyll concentrations on the y-axis. So chlorophyll is how you are representing algae, basically. (laughs) So you may get this relationship by looking at one lake through time. Or you could get this relationship by looking at, you know, every lake in Wisconsin that you have data for and kind of plotting it all together. So that relationship, though, that model, that statistical model that you've developed isn't going to capture things like, well, what is the impact of temperature on that day to the algae? It's not going to capture things like, well, what about other nutrients besides phosphorus? What about nitrogen? What about carbon in the system? It's not going to capture, you know, complicated food web dynamics. You know, if you have more fish that eat algae, you will probably have less algae in your lake than when you're comparing to a lake that doesn't have any fish in it. 
right? Or, uh, you know, something like that. So there are all these things out there that you know you're not measuring that influence it, right? Uh, yep. These unknowns. I'm reminded now as you're saying that of uh, 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 the idea of known known unknowns and unknown unknowns, right? Um, which I first came aware of thanks to Donald Rumsfeld, but that's a different podcast. And, uh, and so is that kind of what you're talking about there? And so those go into this uncertainty idea? Yep, yep. So all those things. And so you can know things. You have your known unknowns, right, that go into your uncertainty. There's also going to be things that, you know, we, we don't know about yet that are going to lead to model uncertainty. When you have more complicated models, you know, outside of a statistical model, um, my background is a lot in hydrodynamic modeling and thermodynamic modeling of lakes. So we are taking a physical equation that we know, you know, to be true, to be real and accurate, but then we're putting that into a computer. And so when the computer is doing all those calculations, you're going to get some kind of error from those calculations. And so that is in the uncertainty. Okay. You know, that can be included in uncertainty as well. But so this is where people start to get hung up. And so I have questions about this. So you're talking about putting all these things into a computer. Like you take something you know in the real world and you put it in a computer with other variables and it spits out a number and some uncertainty. Like, is there any way to know that the models are like any good? Is it all garbage? Uh, like, do you ever, is there a way to verify those? Do you verify them typically? Or, or what do you do as far as that goes? Yep. So whenever you make a model, you do do some kind of verification and the the details of how kind of depend on the model that that you're building. So if you're looking at a just a statistical model, one way and you do the same thing if you're thinking about a more mechanistic model or fancy computer model. Um, but one way of doing it is to take a set of data that you are using to build your model. So you may say, I'm going to take data from half the lakes in Wisconsin mm -hmm. to develop my uh, phosphorus and chlorophyll relationship. You develop your model, try to get an estimate of uncertainty based on kind of the, the statistics and the things that you know and how well that, you know, simple model creates the data that you're using to build it. Then what you do, so this is called calibrating the model. Then what you do is you take the model, so whatever either statistical equations that you've used or, um, you know, computer simulation that you've used and you plug it in with a different set of data. And so this is called model validation. Okay. And from that, you can say, okay, I trained it on one set of data. How does it recreate a different set of data? Does it accurately recreate? I see. Data? So if you have enough in this case, lakes, you can sort of split it, split it in half and say, all right, let's use this half to develop it. And then we'll test it in the real world and, and see how well it works using the other half of your sample. Right. Yep. Interesting. Okay. And, uh, and that's why, um, things like long-term monitoring or broad, broad scale monitoring are actually really important. So it'll help you make a better model. Right. Oh, how's like, it do that, Carolyn? Well, I mean, basically, if you you mentioned it, Stuart, that if you have enough lakes to do this, the the validation of the model, um, then you have more confidence that your model is good, right? Madeline, is that? Yeah. Yep, yep. So if you have more data that you can use to create the model and then also validate the model, you can be more confident in your model. The other thing that you need to consider is the 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 range or the conditions of your observation data that you're using to build the model. So I'm going to use, uh, you know, a lot of my PhD research was in 
kind of projecting climate change impacts on lakes. So we have, you know, great information from right now, but we don't really have a set of data that we can pull from that's going to say, okay, for, for lakes specifically, we know what the current current air temperatures are, current climate conditions are. And so we're using those models and then we are going to put in the climate projections to the models that we've built. But that's assuming that those, you know, air temperature versus uh, a phosphorus concentration or whatever, or ice cover um, relationships that we develop using the data we have now are going to hold true when when we're under a different under condition. Different climatic conditions. Huh. Yeah. Yep. So if you have a set of data that has more variability into it, you know, a, a larger range. So thinking back to our phosphorus model, um, if you are only building your model on lakes where phosphorus is low, and then you try to use it to talk about lakes where phosphorus is high, it may not be um, entirely right. valid. So yep. that's interesting. So, so in developing these models, what I'm hearing is it just requires a lot of domain expertise, I think, right? Um, and, and so as I think about like right now, there are three models that I think about all the time. Um, not literally all of the time, but figuratively all of the time. Uh, and that's some portion of my brain is always thinking about these. Well, <laughs> I would argue that some portion of my brain might not always be thinking Carolyn, but I'll, I'll stick with it. Um, and, uh, and those are right now, uh, it's a uh, COVID-19 models of which there are tons. You know, I go to the 538 homepage and I look at the COVID models all the time. Other uh, climate models, which, you know, my research, I'm not a climatologist, but I've, a lot of my research has to do with climate change beliefs and attitudes as a social scientist. And then like election models are going to suddenly start cropping up. Um, and there's all sorts of ways to do that. But so developing those models takes like a ton of uh, domain expertise. And I think we saw that with COVID where people who are not experts in immunology or uh, uh, epidemiology, maybe were developing some models that at least at first kind of stunk. Uh, so when, when you're looking at models like that, how, how can you evaluate them? Uh, you know, what, what, what can people do when they see those to evaluate the quality of the models, I guess? Yeah, that's a great question. And also something that I'm going to say I get personally irritated with sometimes when I say, I'm like, you don't know about this. Stop talking about it. Uh, so one thing to do is as kind of a lay person who sees, maybe you see something about a model on the news or whatever. So first of all, you have to understand that if you are not at the primary source, so at that peer-reviewed journal article, you should go look for it. You should go look for, you know, the 538 blog um, where they actually talk about how they came up with the model or if, a, you know, a COVID model is mentioned on the news, you should try to catch the name of the author or where the study was done and try to look it up so that you can actually evaluate it properly. Then when you look at a model, um, some important things to consider are who actually is publishing this model? Do they have expertise about it? You know, I have a lot of expertise on lake modeling. I do not have any expertise on the 
ant colony <laughs> modeling. So if I were to publish something about an ant colony, um, you should be like, mm, not entirely sure that this is the right person to be talking about this. Um, and it may be that, you know, one person is has expertise in computational modeling, but they have subject matter experts as their co-authors. You know, that would be one thing to look for. Who is actually putting the model out? Um, is it, do they have the expertise to be, to be doing it in the first place? And then um, if you are able to dig into the weeds, one thing to look at is the assumptions of the model. That's always really, really important. I'm going to use COVID as an example. Um, I am not an expertise in epidemiological modeling, but you, you've seen a lot of work come out talking about the importance of masks. If one model simulates where nobody wears masks and another model simulates where everybody's wearing masks, they're going to have two different results, right? So you're saying, well, how do I compare these two models? Look at the assumptions. One assumed no one wore masks. One assumed everyone wore masks. Probably the answer is going to be in the middle of those two <laughs> extremes, right? So look at the assumptions that are made in the models. And even if you are maybe not a subject matter expert, I think you can still um, assess whether those assumptions are correct or figure out whether how those assumptions may have affected the results of the model. For example, the next thing that you want to do, I think, is look at how the model itself is presented. What, what are the drivers of the model? Then you want to look at how the authors present the uncertainty and the results of the model. So when you actually get to this, you know, primary literature, a lot of modelers will do a good job of explaining uncertainty. Say we have uncertainty because of this. Our result could change because of this. So digging into those weeds a little bit will help you interpret the model um, in the way that you need to to make whatever decision you're trying to make. Well, this is really interesting. And and so I think that modeling is going to become more, not less prevalent in our life. And so I think this is a really good start. We're, we're going to talk about this kind of stuff again and again and again, um, because I think it's a really great example of how to use the context of somebody's really, you know, first of all, really interesting uh, work that you do in terms of how do you predict how much poop is on a beach? Uh, and No, that's not what she's predicting. <laughs> you didn't get the, You didn't. <laughs> More to the point, uh, the the predictors of poop, um, which was the name of my band in high school, and uh, and and so um, uh, so that anyway. Uh, but using that then to talk about this broader thing, and, and this has been uh, really really wonderful and and pretty interesting. But that's actually not why we invited you on this show. The reason that we invited you on teaching about the Great Lakes is to ask these two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? I'm going to respond with a, a clarifying question. Oh. Am I alone or are my kids eating <laughs> with me? That is a good question. I want the answer for you, not your kids, because anybody who chooses to have a donut with their kids is insane. And uh, <laughs> so we are going to pretend for a glorious moment that you're at a conference. Uh, you're winning an award um, in your hometown for best modeler. Uh <laughs> And, and, and your reward is you get to pick a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch all by yourself. No kids. If you have a, a, a partner or a spouse, they could be there or not. It's really up to you. Yeah. 
So I'm going to go with a donut because my kids really like donuts and I usually don't actually get to eat a whole donut ever. <laughs> They're less enthusiastic about sandwiches. So I can usually get a sandwich. You get a whole sandwich, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you get a whole donut, not just the donut hole. Good. Yep. So what uh, What kind of What kind of donut? So you're in, I can't remember, you're, you're in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, outside of Madison. And, and so where, where, when I'm visiting the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, where should I go to get a really great donut? Um, so in my middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, we, I mean, I don't actually technically live like in a town of 13 <laughs> acres, but the closest actual town only has, I think they have 7,000 people. Um, so I usually get my donuts either at, actually the grocery store has a really good bakery with good donuts. Solid. Or there's um, a local little restaurant that um, is known for their breakfast. Known for the breakfast. So they have some donuts there. Donut or yep. restaurant? I never thought about that. That's excellent. Yep. I'm in on that. Okay. And then, what is uh, the name of the restaurant? Oh, yeah. It's called it's called Schubert's. Schubert's. I'm going to take a guess. S-C-H-U-B-E-R-T apostrophe S. Yep. I will look it up and put a link in the show notes if they have a website. Although in a town of 7,000, I don't know. Uh, we'll see. And if so, I will be sure to add Schubert's. We're going to have a tour one day. we got to get funding. Uh, it's going to be hard to convince the government to fund this, I will be honest. Um, but we're going to get funding to do a donut and sandwich tour of the Midwest. If we call it a trail. Maybe they'll fund it if we call it a trail. Local food heritage lunch trail. No, there we go. no, the models that we talked to at the beginning of the podcast, yeah. they can support this yes. particular yes. initiative. Yeah. There we but go. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> models, call me. Um, <laughs> all right, great. And so then <laughs> uh, next question is this, what is one piece of life advice that you have for our listeners? We like for them to take something home. In addition, to all this really great knowledge about uh, uh, modeling, uh, you know, what's a little something that uh, uh, you want to share with them in terms of how to live the good life? It could be big or small, serious or silly. Yeah, this is a great question. So I think the best advice that I've ever been given that I didn't always follow, but I definitely think you should follow, is when you are trying to make a decision about something, you should go with your gut. So I think sometimes, especially like I have a science background, we like to, you know, do a pros and cons list and kind of overthink things. Um, my gut has never been wrong. So I think you should, you know, if, should I take this job? Well, are you excited about it? Do you get that like happy, fuzzy feeling? Then yes, you should probably take the job. Do you kind of have like that, like, uh, I don't know if I should take it. I don't really feel, it kind of like feels weird in my belly. Then you probably shouldn't take it. Um, and I think that's so far worked out in my life. As somebody who used to be a natural scientist and has trans, uh, slowly evolved into a social scientist who does more and more qualitative research, that is music to my ears, Madeline. <laughs> Great. Uh, wonderful piece of advice. So where can people go to find out more about you, the work? Is there like a social media thing, a website? Where should we send them? Yeah. Um, great question. I have a website. I got to find out what it is because I don't actually have it memorized. Um, it's Madeline McGee. Weebly.com. There we go. And I will link that um, in the show notes as well. Yep. And I also have a Twitter. And my Twitter handle is at Madeline R. McGee. Madeline R. McGee. R for modeler. Excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Madeline McGee, the Office of Great Wakes, or Great Waters, excuse me, Mississippi, Office of Great Waters Monitoring Coordinator with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Thank you so much for coming on to teach us all about the Great Lakes. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
What a great opportunity to learn about modeling and, and uh, really get into some nitty-gritty detail. It's such a fascinating topic, I think. Yeah, I think that was really, really great. But all, I think all of the episodes that I'm on wind up being a little bit nerdy, but that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is. What an amazing coincidence that is, right? Um, yes. Total coincidence. Yes. But, uh, Carolyn, what's something you learned about the Great Lakes today? Um, it's not necessarily something that I learned, but I want to say that, yes, Wisconsin does have a lot of really pretty beaches. Yeah. And it's great that they are being monitored. <laughs> I feel like many... It is really great to be monitored. I feel like there, there, there are two types of Great Lakes states, those with Wisconsin envy and those that are Wisconsin. Um, although I don't think Michigan fits in there very well. But uh, yeah, they do have a lot of really great looking beaches. And so We for, can do another podcast on the Upper Peninsula and where it truly belongs because there are some people who do not believe that the Upper Peninsula should be part of Michigan. Oh, so really? Oh, Wisconsin <laughs> wants to hog it all for themselves, huh? <laughs> Classic Wisconsin move. Uh, uh, yeah, that's excellent. So... You know, what I learned today was really thinking about, you know, and I've done some modeling and statistical modeling and stuff like that in, in my research, but I haven't really thought through how they're used to make real world decisions in this ways. And how's those things, because usually I'm trying to explain a phenomenon, not predict something. And so to talk to somebody who is predicting things day to day through a nowcast type thing, I think was really interesting. Um, and a lot of good tips, which uh, we will summarize, a lot of good tips, I think, on how to interpret models uh, that you might see in the real world. Well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. You can go to check us out on social media at um, uh, Teach Great Lakes is the Twitter thing. And that's all we have. You can see our website at www.teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com. Carolyn, where else can they find the work that we do at Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant, which I realized I have not mentioned until right now? We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, if you search for I-L-I-N-S-E-A-G-R-A-N-T, um, you will find it. Also, we have a website, iicgrant.org. There we go. So go to the website, go to the social media, do the thing. And uh, we will see you in a couple of weeks or so. If you remember, we're now releasing on the first Monday of every month and the third Mondays of most months. Maybe some months. We'll see. Either way, uh, we'll see you. And in the meantime, keep great in those lakes. Oh. It just occurred to me. So, uh, nope. um, uh, donuts, Tim Hortons. There we go. We went through a whole episode <laughs> with you on, and I, I did not make a stupid hackneyed joke about Canada. So I just found out when we were kids, this is going to get added out, I'm sure. The, there was a, a brand called President's Choice. Do you know President's Choice? It's like a store brand of food. Yes. We ate President's Choice decadent cookies when I was a kid because the Superstore, which is this sort of local grocery store where they roller skated in the aisles uh, to stock. The stock boys and stock girls, or I guess stock men and women, would roller skate. That was a big deal at the Superstore. Uh, and we, they had President's Choice cookies. And, and on the back, they had all this stuff in French. And my uncle came over and was like, well, that seems, I won't use the exact word to use because it involves a bleep. And you told me I'm not allowed to bleep. And uh, so um, they... Uh, they had all this French on there. My uncle said, that seems like a big deal over just a cookie um, with a bleep in there somewhere. And I always thought, you're right. That is kind of weird. But it occurred to me just yesterday that that's because it's a Canadian brand. So, uh, yeah. Thumbs up and to those President's cookies Choice. are really good, too. Yeah, so. rock solid. They also had this oatmeal cookie. Anyway. Yeah, we're going way, way off now. I know. <laughs> I'm starting to get in. We're starting to lean into what the podcast should really be about, which is cookies. Eep.